0: All right, Psalm 103, if you want to turn there in your Bibles to Psalm 103 as we continue our journey through the book of Psalms together. Psalm 103, we're told, again, is a psalm of David, and you'll notice that David in this psalm seems to be celebrating uh, the works of God, particularly Uh, how he works in our lives on a personal level, and you notice that David in this psalm as he begins is sort of doing a little bit of that self-talk thing again, Uh, again just showing us once again as we read through the psalms on occasion uh, that there is actually something biblical once in a while to sort of coaching your own mind and speaking to your own self, I don't know about answering yourself, but certainly speaking to yourself once in a while and and just prompting your own heart in regards to maybe an encouragement to get your focus in the right place or to do the right thing when maybe there's that battle going on within mentally or emotionally or even that wrestling at times between walking in the spirit versus giving in the lust of the flesh. And, and David here, as he begins this psalm, Again, notice he says there, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. So he's talking to his own soul. Again, your soul is that part of you that's uh, reference to your, your consciousness, your mind, your emotions, your will. That's typically when the Bible speaks of the soul, what it's a reference to. And, and so, so this is the idea there. He's kind of talking to his own soul, and he's saying, look, soul— uh, you need to bless the Lord. There are reasons to to celebrate the Lord, and and again, if we think about blessing someone, we're talking about doing something that's kind or that is it makes them feel special or, or brings happiness to them. And this is the idea. Often we think about Lord bless me, bless me, Lord. And, and here the Bible is, he says, "You're no." We, sometimes we should want to bless the Lord, and to, to do something to bless Him. And and one of the greatest ways we can do that, of course, is just with the attitude of our hearts and gratefulness and giving to him praise and glory that he is due. And so this is really what David's calling his his soul to do. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me, that is again, everything within me, every part of me, just bless the Lord and bless his holy name. Verse two, he says, bless the Lord, O my soul. And then he begins to go into this now and forget not all his benefits. I have that underlined in my Bible there, forget not all his benefits. And again, the reason the Holy Spirit puts that there is because sometimes when we get caught up just in our life experiences and the circumstances that we're going through day to day, and we're navigating through this fallen world with hardship. Sickness and suffering and setbacks and difficulties and disappointment and spiritual warfare and just trials and afflictions that we all go through, and add on to that, or you know, just mood swings as human beings and all those things. Sometimes we can just kind of get to that place where we start forgetting the many beneficial things that there are in our life as the simple result of just knowing God and being in a relationship with God. And you know we, we talk about from an occupational standpoint a, a benefit package, right? if you work for this particular company oh they got great benefits if you go to work for this company, they got really good benefits and and there are certain benefits that are you know given to employees or whatever well i mean as a as a Christian and as a child of God, we have a benefit package that 's out of this world. I mean the benefits. For those who know and live for and follow the Lord to be a child of the living God, a child of the king, the benefits are incredible. And so the Bible here kind of prompts us, the Holy Spirit here through David, he says, man, you, you, you need to recall once in a while, don't forget, don't don't neglect to think about. It. He says, forget not. That is, don't let yourself forget in the midst of focusing on this and being frustrated over that and he, that happens, but he says, but sometimes you got to f- don't forget the benefits. What about all the benefits that are in your life as the simple result of knowing Jesus, of knowing the, the Lord God in a personal and a true way? And and then he begins to just list in the psalm some of the benefits. Certainly it's not exhaustive, but he just kind of starts pinpointing some of those benefits that should lift our soul to great celebration and thankfulness When we think about his benefits that he brings into our lives, many, many benefits, he begins to describe some verse three, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So the first thing out of the gate, if we have no other thing that we think's good in our life or man, my life is just this or that stinks or life's bad. And, and we get into that whole kind of you know frustrated, self pityed the woe is me and woe is everything in my life. He says, look, don't forget his benefits. And the first thing he says is he forgives all your iniquities. I have the word all there purposely circled because the word all means including everything and excluding nothing. It's not just that he forgives, which means he pardons from the punishment that we deserve. He's going to say later on in the Psalm, another thing he's very thankful of, he's going to say later in the Psalm, he says, it's a wonderful thing that he hasn't even dealt with us according to our sins or treated us the way we really deserve to be treated for our sins. That That's just the way that he treats us in response to our wrongdoing. The idea here is, is he's pardoned us from any punishment. There's no animosity in God's heart. There's complete and total forgiveness for, notice, not just some of your iniquities, all your iniquities. All the things that you have done from your first breath until your dying breath are able to be purged, cleansed, forgiven, pardoned by God. That that he is a God that's ready to pardon. That the Bible tells us that he wants to remove our sins from us. He's going to talk about that later in the psalm as well. And what an incredible benefit. (laughs) I mean, the benefit and all the more, how much more for you and I on this side of the cross and the resurrection, understanding the fullness of of the finished and completed work of redemption and the blood shed by our Lord Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, the Bible says, who takes away the sin of the world. Again, the Holy Spirit is prompting David to write this in a time when they were still making sacrificial offerings and they were still celebrating the day of atonement once a year when they would apply the blood of a sacrifice for the sins of the nation and, and they knew forgiveness to a degree, how much more? Can we claim the benefit and the truth of verse three that he forgives all your iniquities? Think of every wrong thing you've done. The, the thing you're most humiliated about or regretful of and all of that. It's all cleansed. It's all pardoned. It's, it's all forgiven. God's not angry with you or is not holding animosity towards you. Other human beings might still. But God's not. God's not upset the least bit because he's forgiven all your iniquities, and that's a great blessing and a fantastic benefit to live your life in that way without guilt and shame, to have that removed from your conscience. He mentions as well in verse three, he also heals all your diseases. Heals all your disease. That is all in the sense of any of your diseases. And I think the idea here and the emphasis ultimately is no matter what the disease is, whether it is a headache, whether it is cancer, whether it is the most minuscule thing of an illness or an affliction, or whether it is the absolute worst case scenario, there's no disease, there's no sickness, there's no physical condition that God is not able to heal. He can heal all diseases. And we read the gospels and we see Jesus as God in the flesh, living out his earthly ministry, and clearly one of the predominant things that Jesus was doing in compassionate ways from time to time, showing God's mercy and love and kindness, was performing cures upon people, healing people, doing incredible miracles, taking away diseases, taking those who were paralyzed and restoring their bodies, taking away Fevers, opening blind eyes, you know, restoring withered hands and and just performing cures on those who were diseased. People who had diseases for prolonged periods of time. The woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. And it says that she saw many doctors and she spent all her money on doctors and, and had given her whole life to try and exhaust that to get healed. And it says that she only grew worse. And then one touch of Jesus And miraculously, whatever that disease or affliction was, she was healed from that. And what a wonderful benefit to know a God personally, to have access directly to the throne of this king, and to know that the king on that throne is actually on top of it your father, who loves you with fatherly compassion and love for you, and that he has the power to heal all our diseases Now, of course, we wonder, well, well, wait a minute. Does that mean then that God heals all of our diseases? So does that mean any disease, sickness, or affliction I get on this earth, that's a guarantee that God is going to heal that disease, affliction, or illness here on this earth? Well, I, I can't build that case biblically. If it be the will of the Lord, he always can do that because all diseases are within his capability to heal if he so chooses. But there is a truth in the sense that God heals all your iniquities in a broader sense because ultimately if he doesn't heal you of that disease or affliction or illness here on this earth, ultimately if you're a child of God, you do receive ultimate healing because you get rid of this earthly body that repeatedly gets sick and diseased and and falls apart over time because they're weak temporary human vessels and ultimately you get rid of that body and your spirits released and you get a brand new glorified body and you're healed eternally so ultimately you could say does everybody get healed completely yes those who know the lord do (laughs) either you may get healed in this life and sometimes god disperses his gifts on occasion of healing he'll disperse gifts of healing to different believers in his compassion in his mercy When we ask God to act, sometimes he chooses, it's within his will to show mercy and he heals. And we should always ask for that and always believe God for that. But ultimately to realize that God is sovereign and we don't always understand how all these things work. And the reality is, is this, when we understand a a, a true grasp overall with the Bible teaches on healing is ultimately, if the Lord does not rapture us and take us out of here, then the reality is every single one of us ultimately, you could fairly say, is going to die from the last thing that we don't recover from. True? Every human being that dies of natural causes that isn't raptured off the earth is going to ultimately die from the last thing that comes into their life that they don't recover from. We get ill, we get sick, we have problems, we recover, we recover, recover, and then ultimately something happens at some stage in your life. And if you don't recover from that, that that is the process God uses for the Christian to then transition you into the eternal dimension where you get your ultimate healing because you get a brand new glorified body and you're released from all pain and suffering and disease and sickness as you, you enter into the presence of the Lord. So What a wonderful benefit, though, to know that's an ultimate healing available to all of us, that we're freed from these earthly bodies of pain and struggle, but also to know that we have a God who, in this life, if He chooses for His purpose and glory, He can heal any disease, all disease, any affliction, and we should ask Him in faith to do it and to know that He's merciful, that He's done it before and that He can do it again. It's a great benefit to the child of God, to remember that's available in our lives, to seek him for such. He says as well, verse four, another benefit is that he redeems your life from destruction. To redeem means to purchase back for the sake of restoration. And all of us have experienced this very reality in different ways, the Lord redeeming our life from destruction. I mean, certainly that is true in a spiritual and eternal sense, the redemption of Jesus Christ is the benefit that's come into our life as Christians to keep us from eternal destruction, because that's where we were headed apart from Jesus's redemption and buying us back out of slavery with his shed blood that he used as the payment to free us from sin. That's what redeemed our life from eternal destruction and suffering forever and ever in the torment of hell. But even in just a earthly experience in this room tonight I know my life and many of your lives the truth of the matter is our lives were on a pathway towards destruction all of us before we knew the Lord whether we want to acknowledge it or not or we recognize it or not if you didn't know the Lord at some point in your life you were on a self-destructive path because to live outside of God's will and to be self-governed is destructive. That's how we ruin and destroy our lives. And many of us can look at our life prior to come, to the Lord. Man, I absolutely was. I, was. I was on a pathway to destruction, and the Lord intervened, and he redeemed me from destroying myself. He redeemed me from the destruction I was already bringing into my life. And what a marvelous benefit. He, he spared you from destruction in this life. And even more, he spared you and I from eternal destruction. If that weren't enough that he just said, okay, I spared you from destruction. Enjoy it the rest of your life. David goes on to say, and then if that weren't enough, he crowned you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Now, the idea of crowning someone, that's like putting a crown on someone's head. The idea is, is you're now royalty. So God redeems me from destruction. He forgives all my sins And he doesn't say you should just be a grateful beggar the rest of your life. Then he crowns you and treats you like a king's kid. And he crowns your life with these amazing blessings of his loving kindness. And you experience the tender mercies of the Lord and just the incredible love of God in your life. And how kind and tender and merciful he is. And you see it in the different ways as you navigate your life. And then he says another benefit, verse 5, that we should never forget is he also at times brings great fulfillment into our lives. Satisfaction. The idea is he takes us from a life of emptiness. When no matter whatever we were doing before we knew the Lord, we were miserable and empty and nothing ever satisfied. And we were always discontent no matter what we were indulging in. And yet now to know the Lord, there's fulfillment. There's satisfaction And he has ways of working where he brings good things into our life and he satisfies. He says, satisfies your mouth with good things. The idea is, you know, fulfilling desires, just like a satisfying, you know, when you eat food and the idea there is, and that's the idea there is satisfying, feeding us and bringing things into our life, good things. He brings good things into my life and your life that brings satisfaction to you, man. I I never knew it was possible to be satisfied, to just be content To actually be just not empty for once in my life. And it's one of the benefits the child of God knows to experience fulfillment and satisfaction he says so that your youth is renewed like the eagles the idea there is that, that the lord just continues to bring renewal of strength and, and and the eagle was known to just you know to be able to soar and that's the idea here is that even as you progress in life and your physical energy wears down there's the supernatural strengthening of the spirit where we're where like with youthful vitality you can soar like an eagle even in the days when you should be kind of wearing out and winding down, that the Lord can supernaturally strengthen. He then goes on, verse 6, to keep, I believe, referring to these benefits. He says, the Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed, so those who are being taken advantage of, oppressed, being mistreated. He says, the Lord intervenes. At times, he can execute what's righteous And he can bring forth justice to those who are being wrongly abused and oppressed and taken advantage of. He says, verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Now that sounds a lot there like you'll notice Exodus 34. When the Lord revealed himself, remember, to Moses and he said, Lord, I want to see your glory and he said, you can't you know, see my glory. Remember, he put Moses in the, in the cleft there. And he said, but, but I'll let you see sort of just the radiance of my glory when I pass by. And he passed by and put his hand over Moses. And Moses just sort of saw, you might kind of say, like sort of the afterglow of God's glory. And he heard those words. We see there in verse 8, the Lord merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. Isn't that interesting that that's what God saw as his glory That he's this all-powerful, awesome God. But what God's glory is, is that though he's so powerful, he's also merciful and gracious and slow to anger. Notice God gets angry. There are things that do anger, God. He's just slow to anger. It's a restrained anger. It's an anger that's only right against what's truly wrong. And he's abounding in mercy. Now, interesting in verse seven, there's that statement there, That he made known, it says, his acts to the children of Israel, that his works, that is the children of Israel, congregationally, they saw the works of God. They saw how God acted. But notice it says, he made known his acts to the children of Israel congregationally, but to Moses, his servant, he made known his ways. That is the the general populace of the people of God. They saw God work. But Moses walking in this closeness and deeper devotion to the Lord, really wanting to see his glory. And and as a result of that, God let Moses see his ways. The idea is he let Moses see the way he was working. He sort of gave Moses another dimension of insight into regards to, they they saw my work, but you're understanding the way that I'm working. You're seeing what I'm doing. And and so this is the idea. The Bible says that the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. And as we press closer into the Lord and want to truly see and know more of the Lord, uh, you know, I don't think God's a God of partiality, and it's wonderful to know God's acts. It's wonderful to see God work. It's a whole wonderful thing on a whole other level when we're pressing in further, like Moses spending intimate time with the Lord, and we start to see the ways of the Lord. Oh, I, I understand his ways now. I understand why he's doing what he's doing. And you kind of start to see the heart of the Lord and the way God's actually moving in different situations. And he sort of lets you kind of have an insight to that. It's a wonderful blessing that can come to us. He says, verse 9, he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. So God doesn't hold grudges like people do. Verse 10, glorious thing. He has not dealt with us according to our sins nor punished us according to our iniquities. So not only has God pardoned us and forgiven us, but notice he now speaks here about how he hasn't even dealt with us according to our sins. That is, he doesn't treat us according to how badly we behaved in our past or maybe how much of a rebel or how nasty we were before we... Our eyes were open and we came into a relationship with God and maybe we have a ton more baggage we feel like in our mind than all these other people. He doesn't treat you like a second-class citizen. He doesn't say, well, I mean, yeah, I'll mean, all right, I'll adopt you into the family, but I mean, you're never sitting at the dinner table. I mean, we'll set a little card table up for you over here because, I mean, the things you did, I mean, God doesn't do that, right? He forgives us, cleanses us, washes us. And he treats us all with the same favor and the same kindness. And it says he doesn't even not only punish us according to our iniquities, but he doesn't even deal with us or treat us according to our sins. You know, sometimes I'll hear hear people, you know, say things, you know, well, well, God's not fair. Why doesn't he, he, he should, you know, I deserve better than this. That's the craziest thing. You don't want what you deserve. Nobody wants what they deserve. We should be really thankful God does not give us what we deserve. This is the whole idea. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins. Now, other people have dealt with us according to our sins, right? We, we've all experienced that. W- where even people will say, well, I forgive you or I pardon you, brother. But then the rest of your life in this underlying way, you can tell there's just this unseen chip on their shoulder. And they just, they just relate to you different the rest of your life. Because of that offense or those series of offenses in the past or whatever. And, and they utter the words, I forgive you, but the way they deal with you or treat you, it's, it's according to what happened in the past. And they, they kind of continue to just give you that B-class treatment and, and you'll just kind of be under their thumb the rest of their life. Aren't you so glad God's not like that? He doesn't treat us like that. He forgives us, he releases it, and he just pours his grace and favor upon us, and he doesn't deal with us according to our past mistakes or our prior errors. He just, he just lets it go and, and, and lets it be removed. And this is what he goes on to talk about, verse 11. For as the heavens are high above the earth, if you could measure from the earth to the heavens, whether that's just the atmospheric heavens or the stellar heavens, all of the stars and planets. I mean, now we're going even further up or all the way to the eternal heavens. The Bible uses that word in three different ways, but he says, if you could measure from the earth all the way to the heights, to the highest of the heavens, so great. He says, that's how great God's mercy is toward those who fear him, who reverence him and have respect toward God. Verse 12, and as the East, as far as the East is from the West, So far has he, he says, removed our transgressions from us. Now, now notice that word there, and that's a beautiful word. I have it underlined, removed, removed. You know, it's one thing to just say, man, I'm really glad God's not mad at me anymore. I'm really glad that God's not gonna punish me anymore. What a wonderful thing to know in your conscience, the biblical truth that you have to believe by faith Because your feelings won't tell you this. But to believe what God says is true and God says is right and accurate, not what your conscience or your own feelings or emotions want to tell you and your mental and emotional scars of regret over things you've done and the stain of guilt that the Bible says our sins have been removed. They're not there anymore. It's washed, it's cleansed, it's been completely taken away. It's not even just covered over. The Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Here, this Old Testament principle of this says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions, And the word transgressions is the strongest of words typically to refer to sin. It means willful rebellion, the nasty stuff when you just defiantly do something that you know is wrong anyway because you're that selfish and it says he's removed those things from us now the amazing thing is this the spirit of god knowing how things have been created purposely choose those words of removal of our sin from us as far as the east is from the west he could have said north from the south and if you simply begin to travel north on this globe. Ultimately, you travel north, travel north, travel north. Eventually, you hit a destination called the north what? Pole. After you pass the north pole and you keep going around the circumference of the earth, what then starts to happen? You start going south, right? Because then eventually you come to the south pole. And then when you hit the south pole, then it changes again. If you keep going, then you start going north. So if the spirit of God would have said from north to south, That would have been like, I mean, that's pretty far. From North Pole to South Pole, that's a pretty good distance. Thank goodness. But the Spirit of God, understanding how God created the heavens and the earth, wanted to really emphasize the point. So he says, from the east is the west. Because contrary to the North and South Pole, if you start traveling east and you keep traveling east, you'll stay traveling east forever. You never start traveling west. Unless you turn around and choose to go west. That's not the case. You can go north, north, north. Eventually, then you start going south. The two meet. You can go east perpetually. You can go west perpetually. So the idea there is your sins have been removed so far from you. Unless you want to go back and go into contact with them, you'll never encounter them again. That's marvelous, isn't it? That's how far they're as far as the east is from the west. The idea is east and west can never touch. They can never touch. That's how far God has removed, taken away our sins from us. That stain, that guilt. Listen, get over what your mind is saying and accept what God says. That's how far it's been taken away. It's been completely removed from your life altogether. That's how powerful God's forgiveness is. He says, verse 13, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him? The idea of pity is to have compassion upon, to have mercy. You know, a, a father, a parent, their heart is favorably disposed towards their child. And again, just a natural human instinct. You know, something goes wrong in your child's life. You know, your, your friends treat your child wrong. Those horrible kids can't be my kid's fault. Those horrible kids, How, right? I mean, you go and watch your kids compete in an athletic event. If they don't play your child, you're thinking that coach is the stupidest coach don't they know my kid is the best kid on the t- I mean, There's just this natural favor. We have compassion upon our children, no matter who they are, or what they're doing, or how well they're doing. There's that natural gravitation of love and compassion and pity towards them. And here he says, even in the same way a human father has that towards his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him, again, who reverence him for he knows our frame and he remembers that we're dust. So again, God has mercy and compassion upon us and he remembers, it says, our frame, our physical nature, that it is nothing other than the same 17 elements and common dirt outside on the ground, that that is the composition of the human body. I mean, amazing what God's done with some water, dirt, and the breath of life (laughs) and what he's created in these bodies. But the idea is just the frailty of humanity that God knows that we're just human beings from dust we were created to dust these bodies return and the idea is he remembers our frailty and our weaknesses and that's why he has compassion and pity upon us that's why he doesn't have if i could say it this way very high expectations <laughs> in regards to me and you a lot of times we have really high expectations of one another and sadly we kind of have pretty high expectations for ourselves and that's a part of our own sometimes you know human pride because Who has not gone through the experience of when you sin or you blow it or you fail or you make a mistake or your weakness comes to the surface and you're so shocked, right? And you're so frustrated with yourself when the reality is, should I really be shocked when I fail? Not that I want to intend to fail, but should I really be surprised if I remember how weak and frail of a human being I am, then I really should not be that surprised when I fail. I should be sad and I should be thankful that God forgives and Jesus paid for that on the cross and, and that he's merciful. But sometimes I think the problem is is we forget that our frame is weak. We forget that we're very weak as human beings and we're not really as strong as we think we are physically, mentally, emotionally, even you know spiritually. And so I think sometimes it's, we can be harder on ourselves than God even is. And sometimes we expect more of ourselves even than what God does. And not that we shouldn't aspire to walk in closeness with the Lord and holiness. But, you know, sometimes, oh, I'm so weak. I don't know why I get worn out so easy. Well, because your frame is a weak, frail, human, limited frame. And you can do everything you want to make yourself strong, exercise, juice yourself, vitaminize yourself, whatever. You're still a human being. You're weak. You're frail. And thank goodness, God, in his mercy and compassion, you know, he has pity upon us. And Jesus knows this experientially because he came and lived in a human frame, right? He lived out the life of a man in a body. And so he understands. And so that's why he can have compassion, the Bible says, upon us, because he knows what it's like to be tired, to be weary, to be stressed. He experienced a human frame. As for man, verse 15, look, here's how frail we are. His days are like grass. How long does grass make it? Not real long, right? Right. His days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. But then as the wind passes over it, it is gone. Its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to his children's children to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandment to do them. So again, this is, the, this is the, the the condition of this to those who keep his covenant, to those who remember his commandments and live in obedience to them. These are promises unto us as his children. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom, great reminder, rules over all. Not any earthly ruler, his kingdom ultimately superintends and rules over all. He's working even through what people on earthly kingdoms are doing. Therefore, verse 20, he concludes, Bless the Lord in this Psalm, you his angels. So now he calls the angelic uh, beings to gather together in, in, in blessing the Lord with him, you who excel strength and do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you hosts. He invites all the angelic beings to gather and to continue into worship of God he sees the worth of God having expressed these things you ministers of his who do his pleasure again notice verse 21 one of the roles of the angels is they are spiritual ministers who do the pleasure of God Hebrews 1 says that that they are ministering spirits sent forth to aid you and I who are children of of God's inheritance and salvation. They're God's ministers. He sends out his angels, and they often are at work in unseen ways. It's going to be interesting to get to heaven at times and see some of the ways that angelic beings were operating as God's ministers to work in situations when we didn't even realize they were involved behind the scenes doing things. Bless the Lord, he says, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Psalm 104, let's take a little bit of look there. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty and you cover yourself with light as with a garment who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. So you'll notice Psalm 104 basically is a celebration of God as the creator. And here the psalmist really just kind of speaks about the creative acts of God. And here he's kind of celebrating the power of God and how God has shown that just in everyday creation. And we know the Bible tells us that through creation is one of the ways that we see the invisible attributes of God, that creation itself testifies, it speaks, that there is a loving, all-powerful, wise, orderly God who has done things to establish creation and to care for his creation. And this is what the psalmist is now celebrating. He sees God in these picturesque ways, sitting there upon a throne, that he's robed himself with glorious light, sitting there, that he's stretched out the heavens like a curtain. He lays, verse 3, he says, the beams of his upper chambers in the waters, he makes the cloud his chariot. So he pictures God, again, in control, riding, using the clouds as his chariot to move in ways that he does, walking upon the wings of the wind, who makes his angels, again, verse four, another reference, his angels' spirits and his ministers of flame of fire. So again, we see this is the role of the angels and we see it in the Old Testament when angels would show up in the days of Daniel and the other prophets. We see it in the New Testament Even Jesus himself, it tells us in Luke's gospel that angels came and strengthened Jesus in his humanity when he was struggling and weak in the garden of Gethsemane. So again, these angels that God sends out, they're his ministers in supernatural ways. They help you and I as the people of God doing God's ministry. Verse five, he says of God, you laid the foundations of the earth, speaking of his creative acts, establishing the earth foundationally, so that it should not be moved forever. And then he says, verse 6, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, and then at your rebuke, his spoken word, the power of his voice, the waters fled. At the voice of your thunder, they hastened away. They went up over the mountains, went down into the valleys to the place which you founded for them. As the place God designed for them to ultimately settle in the waters of the earth. You have set a boundary also that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. Now, verses 6 through 9 there, possibly two things. That could be a reference that the Spirit of God is describing there, a reference to what God did in his creative acts. That is the original acts of creation given to us in Genesis 1 and 2. That is God, you know, created the heavens and the earth and it says that God created the dry land. And some believe that initially the entirety of the globe at one point was covered in water. And then that when God established the land and the physical features of the land on the earth, that those things where he says here, you covered it with the deep as with a garment and then the waters stood above the mountains. The idea is that these mountainous ranges, things that we now know as mountainous ranges, that was everything was once covered with water. And then when God spoke to separate the land, the dry land from the water, that these mountain ranges came up and valleys went down. And then the waters went to the different places that we now know as their boundaries, as seas and lakes and oceans. And that this was a part of God's original creative acts in the way that he was doing this and that it was happening again by the voice of God at his rebuke the waters fled went up over the mountains he says and down into the valleys to the place that you founded for them and then those became the boundaries for the oceans and the seas and the different water bodies on the earth or it's likely that the psalmist could be referring to or maybe referring even to both speaking of what happened during the time of Noah's flood Uh, And that is a very likely possibility of these verses too, that that water canopy that it seems existed as a protective barrier around the earth in a time of what we refer to as the antediluvian age when longevity of life existed because that water canopy that sort of surrounded the earth, remember it had never rained on the earth initially up to the time of Noah's flood, rain had never happened. It seems there was this vapor or water canopy keeping a lot of the harmful radiation rays out which again, we know that the sun and radiation and those things are typically what causes cell mutation and complications and problems. So that's probably why longevity of life was possible to the degree, to some degree anyway, in the days prior to the flood. But then when God brought the flood, that that canopy broke, that rain came and the earth was covered with water. We know that, right? In the days of Noah's flood. And so these verses could be describing how you covered the earth with the deep, verse six, as with a garment, the waters stood above the mountains. The idea is the entire earth was flooded, indicating that what Genesis speaks about in chapter six, seven, and eight, that the entire earth was covered even over the mountains, the water was over. But then what ultimately happened? At a certain point, God wanted the waters to recede. And how did the waters recede? The waters receded, verse seven, when God gave his rebuke, the waters fled and they hastened away and they went up over the mountains and down into the valleys to the place where you found it for them. And the waters then returned to their boundaries as God spoke and the flood waters receded and the dry land and ground began to appear once again and God put them back to where their boundaries ultimately were. But again, just the reality of this fact that this is the God that we know a God of this kind of power that can speak to these incredible things that exist in creation and in his powerful word. These things happen just to speak the word just to say that in an entire I mean the power of moving water and floods and currents and and God can just speak the word and these things obey him and go up and hasten to their place and stay in their boundaries and the oceans don't go past where God is set for them. To, to be at. He says, verse 10, and he sends the springs. Now he's talking about the other smaller bodies of water. He sends the springs into the valleys. They flow among the hills. Those springs give drink to every beast of the field. The idea is they supply adequate hydration. They care for all of the animals, taking care of the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst at these streams and rivers and lakes. By them, the birds of the heavens have their home. They sing among their branches, he waters the hills from his upper chamber, so again here 's the idea of water melting off of higher elevations, running down, and the earth becomes satisfied with the fruit of your work. so God again, bringing now we're gonna see vegetation and abundance to care for the planet, for the animals, for you and I. He says verse fourteen, he causes the grass to grow for the cattle. Now, I mean, I'll be very candid. I hate cutting the grass, so that verse always bothers me. Just when I have a quandary. Every time I cut the lawn and I go, Lord, you cause the grass to grow, but I hate the grass. I just, so, just a little personal struggle I have with taking the Bible literally. He causes the grass to grow, but he causes it for the cattle, not for me to cut it. That's my problem there. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle out in the fields and the vegetation for the service of man. The idea there, you know, some translations render that and, and plants for the use of mankind. I think that's interesting. God causes the grass to grow for the cattle, and he causes vegetation or plant life for the service or usefulness of mankind, certainly to feed and nourish us, but perhaps maybe even medicinally. The idea is God's created vegetation and plant life to be used to serve mankind, to help us in our health, that he may bring forth food, from the Earth, and wine that makes glad the heart of man, and oil to make the face shine. Again, they would put oil on their face to make themselves look more attractive, the ideas. and bread which strengthens man's heart. So now he's beginning to describe here that God didn't just supply and create and do what He does just to take care of necessity. That would be kind enough to just do what he does for our basic necessities. But these verses are describing he also has put things in place for our enjoyment, for our pleasure, that he's that kind of a good God. You know, first Timothy six says that God gives us richly all things to enjoy. And so again, God could have created a very generic, boring Planet for us to live on, right? I mean, he could have created one kind of tree, and he could have made just enough for us just to eat a bland meal every day, and life would just be this mundane, boring existence. But I mean, look at the creativity. Look at the pleasurable, enjoyable things that God has created, different tastes of different, you know, fruits and vegetables and all the things that are at our disposal that aren't just for necessity. But God's given a whole lot as a good father for our pleasure. Things that we can enjoy and actually have benefit. And and again, that's just his kindness and his love towards us. He says, verse 16, the trees of the Lord are full of sap. That word sap there is in italics because it's not in the original uh, Hebrew. The idea is it's an implied idea. The idea is just the the, the trees are blossoming. The cedars of Lebanon, the large cedars, which he planted, Where the birds can make their nests and the stork has her home in the fir trees. The high hills are for the wild goats and the cliffs are a refuge for the rock badgers. Verse 19 now starts to speak about how God's established seasons. Again, God could have made one season, right? Would have been very boring. But God's established different seasons. Aren't you glad? They change, right? When you get sick of a season, a new one comes. And and God brings rotating, he appointed, it says the moon, for the transition of seasons the sun knows it's going down so here's this powerful thing the sun right you can't even look into the thing this powerful incredible star that keeps our planet lit as well as gives life to our planet it's positioned exactly where it is because it was a few miles further away this earth would be a complete polar ice existence if it was a little bit closer the sun it would be a molten ball of lava down here. But God's created the sun, this incredible powerful star right where it is. But notice the sun knows it's going down. The idea is God, you know when to go down, right? i not trying and get, I don't, and, and God's more powerful than the sun because he created it. So it knows when it's supposed to set. It knows when it's supposed to rise. The sun does, he tells us here. You make darkness, it says, in its night in which all the beasts, notice that's darkness at night, when all the beasts of the forest creep about, nocturnal animals. Now watch what he goes on to say here. The young lions, they roar after their prey. They seek their food from God. Now lions know that's good. So you and I should remember that. Where do we seek our food from? Ultimately, we we seek it from God. So the young lions, they go out, and then look what he says, verse 22. When the sun rises, they gather together together And the lions and all these predators that are nocturnal animals, they go lie down in their dens and they go to sleep during the day and they're nocturnal. They do most of their predatorial hunting at night. And then verse 23, when the the little vicious lions go in their dens, daytime comes and then man goes out to his work and to labor until the evening. So God established things in such a way, these ferocious beasts like lions and predators, he created them to be nocturnal So they don't feast on us. So they go out and do their work at night. And then when the sun comes up, they go lay down and take their nap in the den. And then you and I can get up and we can go out and safely work and do what we need to do as human beings and to work until the sun sets. And then we go hide away in our dens and then the lions go out and they do their thing. And God keeps us from getting eaten up by lions. But again, you just see the order and the wisdom and the kindness of God and all these things. But notice as well the indication, verse 23, that man goes out to his work and to labor until the evening. What the Bible is saying here as well is this is the predominant way that God provides for mankind. The predominant way God provides for mankind is man goes out to his work each and every day, to acquire what God has provided for us. Again, God doesn't just, to any of them, the animal kingdoms, you know, he doesn't just tell them, open their mouth, and he just drops food from the sky. They go out and they do something, and that's how they receive God's provision. So does God provide? Yes. But how does God provide? He gives us the opportunity to go out to our work and to labor, and that's how we acquire what we need to be sustained as people. This is the system, even with uh, the, the manna from heaven. Remember, that was how they acquired God's daily bread. Remember, every morning God supplied manna, but what did the people have to do? Get up out of their tent. They had to get out of their little sleeping bag. They had to go out before the hot sun rose and it melted away and go out and gather it. They had to go do something and then bring it back to their tent. So God provided, but they participated by doing something constructive, To receive God's provision. So again, this is God's design. It's a a healthy design for our benefit and his way of experiencing what he supplies for us. He says, verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works in wisdom. He's just so, so wise the way you've set all this in order. You've made them. The earth is full of your possessions. Again, Everything in the earth, the plant life, the streams, the water, the ground that they would go out and work and till to produce their crops. He says, God, you provided all that. We just participate in the process to receive your provision, to procure it for ourselves." But the earth is full of your possessions. That's a great reminder. It all belongs to God. And we were talking about that recently. Hey, everything belongs to God. And when you know everything belongs to God, that's really encouraging because that means whatever you need, God can ultimately find a way to supply it because it all belongs to his possession. The great and the wide sea, in which are innumerable teeming things, all the different creatures that exist in the waters that are out there, living things, both small and great. I mean, think of all the vast ocean life that exists, all the different creatures, small and great. He says, there the ships sail about, and there is that Leviathan. Remember from the book of Job, this... Creature, this, we're not certainly sure exactly what it is, this great serpent-like sea creature. He says, there's that Leviathan out there in the seas which you have made to play there. <laughs> this powerful, intimidating sea creature or whatever this Leviathan is, this serpent. God says, yeah, I made him a swimming pool. He, I just put him out there, he plays in the sea. That's, again, that's his, that's his playground. He gets to swim around for a while. These all wait, the psalmist says, for you, that you may give them their food, notice, in due season. Ultimately looking to God for everything we need, but things come in due season. We do our part and God does the majority part and in due season, he supplies whatever we need, whether a creature, a beast of the field or a human being with a favor of God upon us, he takes care of us all. What you give them, notice, they gather in. See that same principle again? What you give, they gather. God gives, but what's our part? To gather. We gather what God gives. So there's that cooperative work in God's provision taking care of us. He says, you open your hand, they're filled with good. You hide your face, and they are troubled. You take away their breath, and they die in return to their dust. Sounds pretty much like we're all dependent upon who? God. God. God opens his hand, we receive what we need. If we do something and God turns his face away, we're in really big trouble. And he says the very breath in our lungs, where does it come from? Each next breath, you take away a man's breath, that's when they die. And they return to, what does he say? The dust, just like Psalm 103. So again, every breath, every breath belongs to God. He gives us every single breath until the last one. He says, you send forth your spirit, verse 30, and they are created. That was how the first man was created. God breathed into Adam's nostril, the breath of life. Again, that's that word borrow there. In the Hebrew created, it means to create something out of nothing. And that's the idea. God can take nothing and make something as his spirit's power goes forth. He can bring creative acts and he can renew the face of the earth. The psalmist then concludes in a worshipful attitude, saying, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He looks on the earth and it trembles. The idea is the earth recognizes the power of its creator. He touches the hills and they smoke. I will, verse 33, what's the response to God's awesome creative power and his care and his provision, and his goodness, and the way he set things in order for us on this earth, he says it's worship. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God as long as I have my being. May my meditation, that is my thought, my contemplation of these realities, may it be sweet to him, that is pleasurable to him. And I will be glad in the Lord. That's a good reminder tonight. If you feel like you have nothing to be glad about, you do right there. I will be glad in the Lord and may sinners, he says, be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more. May God remove those who hate him and rebel against him that are seeking to corrupt the ways of God. He says, bless the Lord. O my soul, praise the Lord. And let's stand together. and.